Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, everyone, I hope you're doing well all over the world. The, uh, the doom and gloom drums are beating, no matter what you think about it, whether you think that it is 100% natural and just something that's bound to happen to us as humans, or if you think that it's all a big scam, or if you think that it's man-made, the the new COVID variant Omicron is out there and the doom drums are beating again, I see. So I know, me personally anyway, I've just tuned out again from the world at large. I'm just, uh, yeah, and I, I know, like I say, this is a very divisive topic, but um, I've just tuned out. It's uh, tired of hearing about it every day. The division in people in general is just gone ridiculous. I mean, look, this is how I look at it personally. And again, you the listener, of course, you're going to have your own opinion, number one. Number two, I'm not trying to alienate anyone in any way, but this is how I look at it, okay? If you are already vaccinated, right, you're double vaccinated, you shouldn't care if other people aren't getting vaccinated because you're not going to catch it. And I do get that there are people out there that can't have any vaccine and that you may feel for them. Totally get that. But all I'm saying is it shouldn't be like these other people are subhumans because they won't get the vaccine. And for the people that aren't getting the vaccine, I fully get that some of you may feel that people are sheep and everything else and they're being led to this. But at the end of the day, it's their choice to get the vaccine. So all I'm saying is there's no need to hate our fellow man over the fact that they will or won't take a shot, okay? That's just my personal opinion. And the vitriol and the hatred I'm seeing out there is pretty over the top. So I've just taken a step back, like I say. Uh, aside from that, like I say, pretty warm down here. Very high pollen and um, allergy type counts. Aside from that, I just finished the Wheel of Time series of books which is one of the biggest book series in history, four and a half million words. And I just finished the very last book yesterday. Now, those of you out there that know, it's obvi obviously also corresponds with the first season of the Wheel of Time series. Now, I'm a sucker for fantasy. Some people love your sci-fi. For me, I love fantasy. I love high fantasy, swords and dragons and magic and all that. Like I say, I always have since I was a kid. Growing up, Conan was one of my favorite movies. Red Sonja, those type of movies. Uh, I, I had the Conan comic book way back when as well, so it's always been something I've enjoyed. The series to me so far has been a bit of a mixed bag. Some of it's been pretty good. I get that you've got to change things in a TV program. you got to shake it up a bit. you got to have things that are a bit different. But I think that some of the changes they've made are a bit ridiculous. I also think some of the changes they've made have been changed for the sake of wokeness or inclusiveness. The thing about Robert Jordan's world is he the 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 stories that he wrote women are very empowered already, okay? So he is not some type of misogynist who thinks that men are better than women and everything else. He's very supportive of women number 1. Number 2, there is a very inclusive world and all colors under the rainbow and yes, sexualities as well but the thing is they're not in a homogenous mix not every village has got every 
culture mixed in it. I mean, and that's just reality with real life today as well, right? But instead of waiting until we get to those countries where you may have other ethnicities being the basis of that country, the majority and, in fact, the the people that live there, no, no, early on, we've just got to cram everything into every village. I mean, yeah, and to me, that's a bit far-fetched and a bit unrealistic. Hey, it's great that you want to have some inclusiveness with actors and actresses, but, um, yeah, to basically cram it into things. I mean, it's basically some of those, it's like some of those retro stories, and it goes both ways. I mean, you had way back in the 50s, you had John Wayne, of all people, playing Genghis Khan, right? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, he looks really Mongolian. But on the other hand, now you've obviously got a lot of revisionist history where people write things in, like a story in medieval Europe, and you've got like a quarter of the the, the cast being um, African descendants, and then they say, oh yeah, well there were Africans in Europe at the time, no, not, not a quarter of the population, uh, not even uh, probably a quarter of a percent. But again, I digress, I mean... It's just, to me, no problem with having some inclusiveness and some including those different cast members, but make it realistic, okay? Don't just jam them in there to jam them in there. To me, it just cheapens everything. I mean, if you just take an actor or an actress and use them to fill a quota, to me, that's BS. I mean, any actor or actress should stand on their own merits. And me personally, I wouldn't want to be included in a part just because it's like, well, we need a white guy or, you know, we need whatever it is, we we need UJT to fill this simply because we need this color or we need this religion or whatever the case is. Be like, that's all you look at me as. as. You see what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, I know it's a bit of a divisive topic, but I, I'm just saying, okay, it's his stories, his world are very inclusive. And I was really surprised as I went through the novels that he was so ahead of his time, really, because he wrote most of these from the... I want to say early 90s up until I think Robert Jordan passed away in 2007. And then the remaining three books, the the very last end of the series was written by another author. But yeah, it, it's just to me, don't try and jam everything in there just to jam it in there. And again, making change for change's sake to me is sometimes a bit silly. There's that old saying, which is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so when you've got some of these really great stories, no different than... uh Lord of the Rings, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. If you want to do that, basically to me, then do like a prequel series or do a post series where you can kind of let freedom reign, so to speak. So, for example, in the the story of uh, the Wheel of Time, right, it's basically set at the end of the Third Age. So if you really wanted to just make changes wholesale, then why not set it earlier? Why not set it early in the Third Age, like during the Trollic Wars or something, where you've got a lot less guidance on certain characters and the way things are, and you can add new characters as you see fit? No problems. But anyway, that look, that's just my, my in, input on it. Uh, it's no different than Game of Thrones. Obviously, there were quite a few changes in Game of Thrones that got people really riled up. So, um, yeah, uh, it's it's just a bit annoying to me. But anyway, folks, um, I digress. Uh, that's the other thing I've been doing. I've just finished off all my books. So yeah, got that out of the way. Now I'm just watching the series. And I will watch the the whole series. Hopefully it doesn't end up like Game of Thrones and go off the rails at the end. So anyway, let's see. That's uh, uh, COVID tirade. 
a uh, <laughs> Wheel of Time tirade. So that's about all the tirades for this show. Oh, one more. Yeah, let's not talk about the NFL. Um, I'm a pretty disgruntled Seattle Seahawks fan about now, so uh, we won't even go into uh, we won't even go into depth on that. I know Trey will be having a laugh when he uh, when he hears this, but it's been a rough season for us Seahawks fans. And sooner or later, I knew the uh, the Seagulls were going to come home to roost. We just traded away picks and. We didn't. We haven't drafted well for a while. I knew sooner or later we were going to have a rough season, and this is that said season. And of course, we traded away our first round pick this year, so the Jets are going to uh, do well out of our poor season. So anyway, it is what it is, and uh, I'll still follow the NFL. But yeah, it's been a pretty rough season around here as far as expecting anything. I I don't even think we'll make the playoffs, and fair enough, they don't deserve to make the playoffs with the way they played this year. So yeah, folks, uh, I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving for those of you in the U.S., those of you who celebrated it. Uh, I had my roast meal down here, so it was quite good. And yeah, tonight we're going to have some more articles. So I've got some older ones that Trey sent me, and I've also got some here that uh, that I've cobbled together so we can have another extra, extra-sized portion of the News of the Dam. So for those of you who don't know, Charles Fort was a gentleman in the early 1900s who was into these things that interest us so much, be they sea serpents or funny lights in the sky or out-of-place artifacts or people disappearing. And Charles Fort gathered 30 or 40,000 index cards of information from periodicals of the day, newspapers and magazines. And he compiled them all, and then he wrote a series of four or five books. And Charles Fort referred to any data that was ignored or excluded by science. So, for example, if there was a radio signal that they didn't want to talk about, they just ignored it, didn't give it press coverage. He called that data damned data. Therefore, this segment on the program is always called The News of the Okay, so the first article I've got here was sent to me by Trey in Portland. And again, thanks, Trey, as always, for sending me through the articles. And Dave from the Old 77 also sent me a similar headline and just said, Hey, JT, I'm sure you're all over this, but what are your thoughts? So sorry, folks, I should have got to this one a bit sooner because it is a bit of kind of important news in the stuff we cover here on the Paranormal Sun. Now, this particular one is from MSN.com, and it says Pentagon announces group to investigate report uh, investigate reports of UFOs near certain military sites. Now, that's obviously something that I've talked about quite a bit in depth in the past here on the program. And again, as I say, <laughs> when people say to me or to people in general, and I've heard this before, well, JT, what does it matter about UFOs? What does it matter what they are or if they're there, if people are seeing them? Well, the bottom line is that you're in the U.S., you're spending more than half of your GDP on military defense, right? On what they call the defense budget, even though a lot of it is for offensive weapons. So if you're paying all that money in your taxes 
and you've got so many other things that you should have and you don't like universal health care um better better uh social security benefits for the elderly better um mass transit all those sorts of things that that money is taken away from and given to the military and i would argue it's more than half of the gdp when you look at the way some of the things are funneled through various agencies and black budgets and that well anyway if you're already spending all of that money and then you've got objects that basically defy conventional aerodynamics and fly with impunity through your space airspace and especially turn up at military installations and basically throw the middle finger at you and say do something about it buddy yeah um, that's one of the major problems with it is i can see why if you're the military and uh certain members of the government in the past and not only in the u.s and other countries as well I can see why you would want people to believe that this is just a bunch of hicks drinking moonshine or a bunch of people seeing the planet Venus or Chinese lanterns or whatever, because you would not want to admit that this is something that could potentially cause a a, a potential defense risk. Now, there's that argument. And then on the other hand, you've got the argument that the military will use this in future to argue for more spending and who knows maybe they already have behind the scenes in these black budgets and that and in these um classified meetings of congress that we don't know anything about who knows what goes on behind closed doors as the old song goes uh so anyway uh this one like i say is from msn and it says um and this one is from okay there's no author here maybe there is at the end uh anyway one other thing to remember, as always, as I say, there'll be a link in the show notes where you can go and check this out yourself. So it says, in the wake of a UFO report last summer, the Pentagon has announced the formation of a new group that will investigate reports of UFOs close to sensitive military sites. And I would argue that this has never stopped, okay? There's, there's no way that some of these cases, even in the times where there wasn't an official UFO investigative group, we're not being investigated. Come on. You cannot tell me that the Pentagon or other members of the military were not looking at those Nimitz footage and all these different things off to this. You can't tell me they just said, oh, well, we can't explain it. Um, well, we, we don't have an official group, so we won't bother looking into it. Come on. How naive do they think that we are? Okay, so anyway, it says the new Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group I love these massive freaking like 30 word names for these things, right? So Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. Yeah, anyway. We'll specifically look at reports of unexplained aerial phenomena near U.S. military facilities. UAP is the military term to describe what is known as UFOs or unexplained flying objects. Yeah, and let's point out that it is the term that the military uses now because in the past the air force uh, and cia among other groups heaped so much derision upon anyone who said that they saw a flying object in the sky that couldn't be explained that the term unidentified flying object or ufo or flying saucer has become a loaded term as they say well guess who did that incursions by any airborne object into our sua special 
uh, SUA, where is it? Special use airspace pose safety of flight and operations security concerns. Yes, dumbasses, that's what we keep saying. That's why I laugh when the FFA and the military say, oh, well, it doesn't pose any risk and may pose national security challenges. Uh, again, why have you been denying this since the 40s? Said a Pentagon press release using the term that includes restricted military airspace, military operations areas, firing ranges, and places restricted for national security and other uses. Again, like the airspace above Camp Pendleton, which I had Marines and Special Forces tell me when I lived in Southern California multiple times was intruded upon by objects that were monitoring their training exercises. And no one could explain what they were. And they were basically told not to report it or it would it would uh, entail negativity for their careers. So don't report it or they're going to think you're drunk or you're on drugs. In a memo outlining the group's formation, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks wrote that unidentified aerial phenomena in special use areas represents a safety of flight risk to air crews and raises potential national security concerns. Yes. And again, it has been going on longer than most of us have been alive. And you, meaning the military, and in particular the Air Force, have said nothing to see here, folks. Don't worry about it. They're all explained, or they're all hokum, or they're mass hallucinations, or swamp gas, or Venus, or people getting high on hillbilly moonshine. It just pisses me off that they're the ones who have been saying this for decades, that it's all bunk. And now they're saying, oh, well, actually, this, you know, if this is true, this could be a risk to national security. You don't think. Uh, the new group will synchronize the Pentagon's efforts with other federal agencies to detect, identify, and attribute objects of interest in special use airspace and to assess and mitigate any associated threats to safety of flight and national security. It will be overseen by the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence who will head an executive council, including the director of the Joint Staff and senior officials from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Last June, the U.S. intelligence community released a report requested by Congress that provided the first unclassified assessment of unexplained aerial phenomena. Compiled by the Navy's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, that report could not explain 143 incidents and said 18 of them appeared to demonstrate advanced technology. The UAP task force will now be absorbed into the newly formed group announced by the Pentagon. Again, layers upon layers, the old shell game. Let's move it around. Wh which shell is the ball under? <laughs> it's just the same old BS. The UAP report also identified the need to make improvements in the Pentagon's processes, policies, technologies, and training to improve its ability to understand UAPs. Yes, of course. Bureaucracy. Bureaucracy, bureaucracy, in width and depth, in the military and in the U.S. government, we all know how out of control the bureaucracy is. So yes, of course it's something that they need to improve. Again, do I really think that there is any... Do I think that this is something new or more of the same? It's more of the same. I really wish I could say hand on heart to you all, this is great, this is brilliant that they're doing this. It's not. It's just another, it's another tool for them to try to act like they're doing something about it or act like they care because people are pointing out rightly so, hey, maybe you should be 
concerned about objects operating at Mach 3, 4, 5, 6 in, in highly sensitive airspace of the U.S. military and other militaries all over the world. Maybe you should be concerned about that. Yeah, it it just boggles my mind. I'm sorry, folks. Like I say, this kind of stuff really gets me stirred up and really pisses me off. I hate it when these type of people act like you and I are stupid or that we don't know what's good for us and, and they'll tell us what's going on. Like I say, I, I just laugh that they're the ones who have been denying for decades that this is any kind of threat or any risk to to uh, national defense, on and on and on. And now at the same time, oh, well, if it is, if it is unexplained craft in uh, sensitive airspace, well, this is a threat to national Really? Really? People have been saying this for 50, 60, 70 years. And you've said, no, it's not. So, uh, hypocritical does not even begin to um, cover this. And I'm sorry, folks. I'm just a bit floored by this continual BS out of the government and the military in the U.S. And again, not only the U.S. military and government, countries all over the world. But it seems the BS seems to be especially thick. The SOS, the S blank 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 on a shingle seems to be triple thick when it comes to the U.S. government and military. Okay, so the next one here is from Trey, and Trey, Trey sent me this um, this article with a funny little comment, and he says, "I really hate spiders." And Trey, I agree. Being from the Pacific Northwest, I mean, my stepdad got bit by a black widow when I was young, and it nearly killed him. Not a fan of any poisonous spiders, particularly. And he sent me an article from Australia. And my friends in Australia, you all know that you've got some of the most deadly creatures in the world constantly prowling your uh, your country. I think it's something like, it's either four or six out of the ten most deadly snakes in the world are in Australia. Then you've got all kinds of deadly um, spiders. So yeah, this is another spider. This is the funnel web. So. I knew about the funnel web before, but um, this one here says deadly and massive mega spider found in Australia has fangs that can puncture a fingernail. Now, this is from Live Science and it's from Mendy Weisberger. So it says funnel web spiders are typically half the mega spider size. So uh, it says what has eight legs and fangs powerful enough to bite through a human fingernail? Mega spider an enormous funnel web spider that was recently captured in Australia. The Australian Reptile Park in New South Wales is a public zoo that also houses a collection of funnel web spiders. Keepers milk the spiders for their venom, which is then processed to create anti-venom, right? Common practice? This particular spider was donated by an anonymous benefactor and arrived last week at the park in a plastic tub as part of a weekly collection from spider drop-off points near Sydney, the Central Coast, and Newcastle, ARP representatives said on November 11th in a statement. Even seasoned spider keepers were astonished by the spider's size. According to the statement, the giant arachnid measured just over 3 inches, or 8 centimeters, from foot to foot. Most funnel web spiders are typically between 0.4 and 2 inches, 1 to 5 centimeters wide, 
and its curved fangs were 0.8 inches or 2 centimeters long. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd be throwing a boot at that and heading the other way. In my 30-plus years at the park, I have never seen a funnel web spider this big, Michael Tate, an ARP education officer, said in the statement. Park keepers promptly named the sizable arachnid female Mega Spider, but they don't know where she was found or who captured her. She had been boxed up in a Tupperware container without any labels or information about her captor, and there were no clues to connect her to any of the drop-off sites along the route, according to the statement. We are really keen to find out where she came from in hopes to find more massive spiders like her, and hopefully flamethrow them all. Funnelweb spiders, which comprise about 40 species in the genre Hedichondri and Atrax, live in eastern Australia, and some species deliver a bite so toxic it can kill an adult human within 15 minutes, according to the Australian Museum. All funnelweb spider species have glossy, nearly hairless bodies that vary in color from brown to a deep black, and they have eight eyes arranged in two rows of four eyes each. The spiders are active year-round and live in burrows and moist, cool habitats, surrounding their tunnel openings with a network of silk strands. When a passing insect or other animal touches the silk, the vibrations alert the spider in the burrow, according to the Australian Museum. ARP is Australia's only source of raw funnel-web spider venom for anti-venom serum production, according to the park statement. Keepers milk the spiders weekly and then ship the venom to a lab in Melbourne that produces the anti-venom by injecting very small doses into rabbits, so that the animals develop antibodies. These antibodies in the rabbit's blood can then be processed into a serum that neutralizes the venom's toxins in humans. According to NPS MedicineWise, an Australian nonprofit funded by the National Department of Health. Since the ARP program began in the 1950s, its anti-venom is established to have saved 25,000 Australians who were bitten by funnel-web spiders and the antidote still saves approximately 300 lives each year. Recent, recent rainy weather and intense humidity in eastern Australia has created highly favorable conditions for the continent's funnel-web spiders. According to the statement, members of the public who wish to safely collect spiders for the anti-venom program are advised to e exercise extreme caution by using glass jars, which the spiders can't climb or jump out of once they've been captured, and wearing protective clothing such as gardening gloves and long pants, according to the New South Wales Department of Planning. The park is especially interested in supersized arachnids like Megaspider, which have bigger reservoirs of venom for the milking program, Tate said. If we can get the public to hand in more spiders like her, it will only result in more lives being saved due to the huge amount of venom they can produce, he said. Yeah, or napalm. Napalm is the other solution there. Not a fan. Totally agree, Trey. Um pass from JT. And the next one I've got here from Trey as well. Thanks again, Trey, for sending me all these articles. This one is from unexplainedmysteries.com, and I've done some articles from there before, and um, yeah, I find some good stuff on there. Now, this might be a rehash of one I did before, but it the article itself, this article, is new to me, so we'll we'll give it a read. And this one says, Pentagon, Pyramid UFO Footage, Authentic. And this was from April the 15th. So this was the pyramid footage, I believe, that the one guy who's a bit of an expert with the with the night vision camera said this is how it was made. Um, but again, we'll read this article and we'll go from there. 
So this one says the Pentagon has confirmed the authenticity of recently released footage of pyramid-shaped UFOs. Sourced by filmmaker Jeremy Corbell and reporter George Knapp, the newly unearthed evidence includes images of video footage of and video footage of pyramid-shaped objects flying through the night sky. Now the Pentagon has come forward to confirm that these UAPs are in fact authentic and that they were captured by the U.S. Navy. I can confirm that the reference photos and videos were taken by Navy personnel, says Pentagon spokesperson Susan, uh, yeah, go, yeah, uh, I have covered this before, in a statement that has since been widely distributed by the media. The UAPTF has included these incidents in their ongoing examinations. Okay, so I'm just going to take a very quick aside because they say here that the Pentagon has said this is genuine footage and these are genuine UAPs. She doesn't quite say that, okay? So again, let's be very careful here. Um, so it says that they are authentic and they were captured by the U.S. Navy. Now, they were captured by the Navy. They have said that, but they, they didn't necessarily say it was authentic. And I know I'm being pedantic, but when you're dealing with UFOs, U UAPs, whatever you want to call it, my personal feeling is semantics matter. And so they're not necessarily saying that these are unidentified craft. They're just saying that they were definitely filmed by Navy personnel. And I do think it's very important to have that distinction. As we have said before, to maintain operations security and to avoid disclosing information that may be useful to potential adversaries, DOD does not discuss publicly the details of either the observations or the examinations of reported incursions into our training ranges or designated airspace, including those incursions initially designated as UAP. According to Corbell and Knapp, these images were presented uh, during a series of classified intelligence briefings back in May 2020. It's also believed they were captured from the USS Russell off the coast of San Diego in 2019. Exactly what these strange pyramid-shaped objects are, however, continues to remain a mystery. So again, it doesn't hurt to rehash some of these recent cases. Um, it is something that's uh, important. And I do think we'll have more and more of this come out as time goes on. Right, so again, thanks for that one, Trey. Now, the next one is something that I saw a while back. It came through my feed, and I missed covering it. So I wanted to make sure I covered it, and I'm glad that I found the article. Now, this one is from Live Science again. And this one came out, uh, it just says 17 days ago, but it's probably been longer than that because I've had the tab open for a few days. And this is from Joanna Thompson. It says, Metal detectorist unearths largest Anglo-Saxon treasure hoard ever discovered in England. The treasure consists of 131 gold coins and four golden objects. And we'll see what they have to say. And if they don't cover it over well, I'll give you a bit of background as well. A metal detect detectorist in West Norfolk, England, has unearthed the largest Anglo-Saxon treasure hoard ever discovered a bounty of 131 coins and four golden objects. Most of the uh, items were found over the course of six years by a single detectorist, who wishes to remain anonymous, according to the British Museum. Ten of the coins were dug up by former police officer David Cockle, also using a metal detector, the Evening Standard reported. However, Cockle kept his discovery secret and then illegally sold the coins for 15,000 British pounds, about 20,000 U.S., 
according to BBC News. When the authorities discovered his theft in 2017, he was charged with converting criminal property and sentenced to 16 months in prison for pure greed, presiding Judge Rupert Overbury said at the sentencing. Cockle was also dismissed from the police force. Of the 10 coins he sold, 8 have been recovered. The majority of the coins are Frankish tremises, small coins from the 6th century that usually contain 85 to 95% gold, according to CoinWeek. Nine of the coins are solid, larger coins from Byzantine currency that carry three times the value of a tremissus. The treasure also includes a pendant, a gold bar, and two other objects that experts suspect were part of larger pieces of jewelry, according to the British Museum. It was buried sometimes around 600 AD, before the unification of England for unclear reasons. Previously, England's largest Anglo-Saxon coin treasure included 101 coins. That trove was discovered in a purse in 1828 at Crondall in Hampshire, Art News reported. However, experts suspect that this hall originally may have been larger, as the purse appeared to have been previously disturbed at the time of its recovery. Other treasure from East Anglia, the region of England where the Norfolk Hoard has been discovered, includes the famous Sutton Hoo burial ship, which contained a purse of 37 gold coins and was the subject of a recent Netflix movie. The Norfolk coroner is currently investigating the West Norfolk treasure to determine whether it belongs to the British Crown under the 1996 Treasure Act, which requires that all treasure be reported to the local coroner within 14 days of discovery, according to The Guardian. While still unofficial, it seems likely the hoard will fit the bill. The Treasure Act defines treasure as a collection of metallic objects or coins that are at least 300 years old and minimum of 10% gold or silver by weight, according to Portable Antiques Scheme, a joint program of the British Museum and, uh, I'm not going to try and pronounce that other because it's Welsh, okay, but the Amgrude Ufa Coomer National Museum of Wales. Again, apologies, but Welsh is very difficult. I struggled when I did the Roswell episode getting some of those um, those uh, town names right. I, I had to listen to it several times online to make sure I got it right because I hate butchering languages, so I apologize, but it's the National Museum of Wales. If the British monarchy claims the find, it may be placed in the Norwich Castle Museum with support from the British Museum for the public's benefit. This is a hugely important find, Gareth Williams, curator of early medieval coins, at the British Museum said in a statement, it must be seen alongside other recent finds from East Anglia and elsewhere and will help to transform our understanding of the economy of early Anglo-Saxon England. Now, my understanding, and I may have this wrong, but again, lost hidden treasure, one of the things that I'm really interested in, just as much as I am in the paranormal, okay, and the, the unexplained stuff we cover here. That's why I do these stories. My understanding is in England, the Treasure Trove Act means if you find that treasure, the British Museum gets it, but they have to pay you fair market value. Now, I'm sure you have to pay tax on it, and I'm assuming that's why this police officer went black market with those coins, because then he didn't have to pay tax on it. That's the only thing that makes sense in my mind, because my understanding is you get fair market value, like I say. Which is only fair, but I mean, there are countries like Egypt, which would seize it and say, no, this is property of the state, you don't have a right to it. So, 
I do find it interesting that that police officer sold sold them. And also, I would say the coins were worth more than what he got out of them. Now, I don't know how many of you out there listening are numismatic fans and basically have collected coins or have dealt with a lot of coins. The oldest coin that I personally have right now is a, it'll be in the 1300s. It's a Venetian gold coin. And the thing is, back then, these coins weren't stamped like they are now. They were hand hammered. So a lot of these coins, when you look at it, it, it looks fake, basically, because it's not perfectly round. It might be a bit oblong. And also, back in the day, what would happen is you'd have this coin, and people would slowly, like, you'd get a gold coin, right? Maybe you were the first one to get it from it being minted. And people would just shave off a little bit of the gold, and then they'd go and buy whatever with it. And that person would shave off a little and a little and a little. That's why coins have ridges on the outside, so you can tell if someone's taken a knife and shaved it off. Now, obviously, in modern days, no one's going to shave off the edges of a quarter or nickel to get the, the metal out of it. But that's why that started. They call it milling on the outside of the coin. And that's also where you've got a ridge around something like a sovereign, so you can tell if someone has shaved it. Uh, nowadays, with accurate electronic scales, it's nearly impossible to screw someone over in that way because you just weigh it on the scale. But those old coins, if you've ever dealt with an old gold or silver coin, and when I say old, I mean older than 16, 1700s, it's very obvious that there's, they're quite different from more modern coinage. It's fascinating to me. But again, it just goes to show England, Europe in general, but especially England and the UK, is just this massive historical treasure trove. And they continue to find stuff like this year after year. So I really enjoyed that. And another in the series of lost treasure type stories. And I hope you enjoyed that one. So folks, I'm going to try and power through the rest of these. Um, you don't know because you end up just getting this show in one lump. But I actually had to take a break earlier. I've blown, I've, I'd blown my voice a bit. And between that and the allergies and hay fever... It's not a very free-flowing show, and I apologize for that. It's a bit annoying for me because I like to just hop on and, and do this all in one bite for you, but unfortunately, sometimes these things come up. Okay, so the next one here, I found a series of basically late Thanksgiving stories that I found through Coast, and they've all of these have got to do with turkeys, but I thought they were quite interesting, and that's why I've included them. They're not quite what you generally get out of the news of the dam, but um, I try and keep things fresh and give you different things. Now, these articles are older because, as you can imagine, it's not every week or even every year you get stories about turkeys. But this one is quite an interesting one, and this is from Coast to Coast, and this was from March the 3rd, 2017. And this one says, watch, and there's a video, and I would encourage you to watch the video. It's quite short. It says, Eerie, it says, Eerie Turkey Circle Caught on Film. And, yeah, this is quite an interesting one. Because there's basically, in the middle of the road, there's this big ring of turkeys walking in a circle, following each other around. And if you've ever seen kind of like the cartoons in that, um, where they've got something that's supposed to be dumb, be the animals or whatever, they do 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 and they're kind of like following each other around in a circle. It's pretty much what these turkeys are doing. 
I don't know, maybe they're trying to conjure a demon or something to uh, protect them from Thanksgiving. It says, a driver in Massachusetts was left dumbfounded when he spotted a flock of wild turkeys easily, eerily circling the body of a dead cat. Okay, I didn't see the cat. Jonathan Davis filmed the bizarre scene in the town of Randolph on Thursday and posted it to his Twitter feed, joking that the turkeys were trying to give the cat its tenth life. As one might expect, the creepy video of the turkey witchcraft subsequently went viral with amazed viewers, offering various suggestions for what the creatures were doing. Fortunately for anyone who enjoys Thanksgiving, the turkeys were probably not practicing a bird-based form of black magic. Oh, dang. A wildlife official in Massachusetts named David Scarpitti explained the cats are natural enemies of turkeys, and therefore the curious creatures were likely trying to figure out what the feline was doing in the road. The spooky circular motion around the downed cat, he said, could have been caused by one turkey performing the motion, and then all of the others falling in a line behind it which is the typical way the birds travel. Yeah, that's true. Nonetheless, the Scorpity marveled, uh, Scorpity marveled neither he nor any of his colleagues had ever seen such a thing in all their years on the job. Let's all hope that his analysis of the event is accurate and be thankful that it didn't take place in Salem, since then we might really have something to worry about. So yeah, I thought that was a cute little story, something... Um, interesting and i've got i've got some believe it or not i've got some other turkey videos here for you as well so that's the first one and again links in the show notes if you want to go and check out the video and this one is from february the 1st 2018 again from coast to coast am and this one says territorial turkey has pennsylvania town torn so nate in pennsylvania nate odd um yeah this one might interest you it says a wild turkey that has laid claim to a patch of road in a Pennsylvania town, and that's a living, breathing wild turkey, not a bottle of wild turkey, has become something of a celebrity in the community. I'm watching the video as I read this, much to the chagrin of some drivers. The boisterous bird has been a fixture along a busy street in the town of Mount Lebanon since the summer. Yeah, he looks pretty angry, too. And over time, his legend has grown to the point that locals now simply know him as Stu. He's sort of like the neighborhood pet, one resident said, who lives along the road, muse to TV station KDKA. But not everyone is thrilled with Stu's daily antics in the middle of traffic, as a Mount Lebanon animal control officer said that the turkey's presence is becoming increasingly disruptive. People driving along the road have reported somewhat unsettling encounters with Stu, where the turkey has brazenly approached the vehicle and even, in some instances, attacked their car. As of now, authorities have given no indication that they plan to do anything about the territorial turkey, but one would assume they will be forced to take action if his aggression escalates. That is, of course, provided that Stu's spell of Stockholm Syndrome, which he has seemingly cast upon area residents, can be broken. Otherwise, they just may cede the street to him. So... A couple of notes from me. I'm just watching this video. It is quite funny. He's uh, like pecking at the police car uh, tire. He's like, I'm not taking this crap. So number one, um, I used to work with a guy named Stu that was a real pain in the backside. And there will be people that will listen to this will go, JT, I know exactly who you're talking about. So I'm not sh I'm not surprised that this uh, that this turkey got the name Stu. But um, but secondly, I do find it quite interesting that. Um, you know, they, they had some good fun with it as well, the, the people in the area. But birds in general, 
I mean, I've known turkeys that have been pretty aggressive. Geese, ducks, yeah. I've, I've when I was a kid growing up, man, geese and uh, swans they get really aggressive and they will chase you. So, um, birds do have it in them. Okay, so one more, one more turkey story. I had to cram them all in because, uh, you know, Thanksgiving only comes once a year. So this one is also from coast to coast. This one is also old, and it's from April the 6th, 2016, and it says, New Jersey town tormented by gangster turkeys. And that's why I thought uh, maybe the Sopranos, um, maybe they'd be wearing, like, suits and that, uh, looking like uh, Tony Soprano and that, so that's why I wanted to cover it. Residents of Teaneck, New Jersey, are living in fear due to a spate of strange incidents involving increasingly aggressive wild turkeys that are roaming their town. One particularly unfortunate victim, Courtney Lopchinski, saw her home invaded by one of the foul fowl when it crashed through her kitchen window during dinner. I grabbed the kids and we literally ran for our lives out of the house because we were so scared, she told CBS2 in New York. Lopchinski claims the ornery Thanksgiving icon caused a whopping $6,000 in damage during its unwanted visit. Yeah, that that's pretty over the top. The encounter is just one of many run-ins with the animals that have caused town officials to take notice as police have re received multiple calls about the angry birds over the course of the last few months. They're like gangster turkeys, Lipchinsky said. They terrorize kids at bus stops and chase people to their cars. Due to the protected nature of the birds, authorities are hard-pressed to find a solution to the problem, but may have devised a plan to, at the very least, thwart future attacks. Town administrators plan to distribute air horns to concerned residents who wish to protect themselves from the turkeys. Additionally, state wildlife officials hope to ensnare some of the animals in order to redistribute them to a different area of the state. Until these plans are enacted, however, denizens of Teaneck will likely be looked over their shoulder, be looking over their shoulder, lest they fall victim to the gangster turkeys. There has to be a peaceful solution, Lopchinsky lamented. They can't just keep ransacking the neighborhood. Unfortunately, the turkeys of Teaneck may beg to differ with that observation. At least the town's named Teaneck and not Teabag. But, um, yeah, interesting little one. Um, it just goes to show, folks, turkeys are a much bigger problem than I ever thought they were. So beware. We don't have, well, actually, sorry, I take that back. We don't have wild turkeys here, but we do have turkeys. The first time I saw some, a friend of mine here took me away on a long weekend to get out of the city. And I really didn't know the area that well at the time. And we came over this rise in the road, and here's these turkeys in the road. And I said to him, uh, drop me off with a knife. You know, I'll, I'll get us a turkey. We'll have a roast turkey. And he thought I was joking, but, I mean, I am originally from the country. I would have done it. Um, but he just laughed. But, yeah, I, I was shocked to see turkeys because, obviously, turkeys are native to North America. And, um, yeah, I was surprised. I didn't know there were any here, but obviously some people do raise them, some farmers. Rightio. So the next one from Coast to Coast. This is something Trey and I have talked a bit about. Many of you know this case, being something that a lot of people are interested in when we talk about the unexplained. And this is D.B. Cooper skyjacking case turns 50. And this was the day before Thanksgiving. Well, sorry, I'll take that back. November 24th. So I don't know what day of the month Thanksgiving was this year. Um, but I know it's not always the 25th, so sorry for that. 
50 years ago this evening, a mysterious individual who later became known as D.B. Cooper became a part of American folklore by way of a brazen skyjacking that remains unsolved to this day. The iconic case began on November the 24th, 1971, when a largely nondescript man wearing dark sunglasses and wielding a briefcase boarded a normally routine flight from Seattle to Portland. Once in the air, he slipped the flight attendant a note stating that he had a bomb and after showing her what appeared to be the explosive device, informed her that he wanted $200,000 in cash, as well as four parachutes. What followed next was a daring caper that has continued to baffle researchers for decades. The hijacked flight subsequently landed at a nearby airport, where the other passengers, unaware of the drama unfolding around them, were evacuated and the money was delivered to the airliner by authorities looking to resolve the matter as peacefully as possible. The plane then took off once again en route from Mexico City. And for those of you that don't know, from Tacoma, Washington to Mexico City is a heck of a long flight. Per the man's instruction, with only him and the crew remaining aboard. Shortly thereafter, he walked to the back of the aircraft and opened a staircase that descended from the rear of the plane. Grabbing the $200,000 and strapping on a parachute that had been provided by police, he jumped from the plane and vanished into history. The FBI immediately launched an exhaustive investigation into the case and set out searching for the skyjacker, who had actually gone by the name Dan Cooper when he boarded the plane. However, the man was soon dubbed D.B. Cooper due to an error in an initial media report that wound up being picked up by the wire services and in turn stuck to the suspect ever since. The wild nature of the crime, specifically the skyjacker bailing from the plane in midair, generated headlines around the world. However, the widespread attention and the best efforts by the authorities proved fruitless when it came to determining the identity of the mysterious man. Perhaps the biggest break in the case occurred around five years later when a young boy stumbled upon a bundle of money from the skyjacking on a remote beach near Vancouver, Washington. Although the discovery provided some insight into what might have become of the man after he jumped from the plane, it did not answer the big questions surrounding the story, specifically who was D.B. Cooper, and did he survive the harrowing leap? Over the ensuing decades, the FBI continued to try to crack the case until finally announcing in 2016 they were suspending their active investigation, but were willing to look at any new potential evidence that may come up in the future, as happened the following year. In addition to the official law enforcement investigation, the D.B. Cooper case has also become a cottage industry for armchair researchers, who have fastidiously poured over the details of the event and put forward all manner of potential suspects. Recent years have seen a resurgence of interest in the quintessential American mystery and a variety of books, documentaries, and TV specials devoted to trying to unmask the man at the center of the strange story. Yet he remains a cipher. One enlightened development from the proverbial Cooper Renaissance is that some of the key witnesses from the flight have come forward to share their first-hand experiences from the skyjacking. Remarkably, time has been kind to D.B. Cooper in the 50 years since that fateful evening, as he is now often viewed as something of a folk hero, akin to a modern-day version of the legendary outlaws that once roamed the Wild West. To that end, and a testament to how the skyjacker is seen today, a minor league baseball team in Portland recently celebrated him by way of a D.B. Cooper night. One can only imagine what the man behind the keeper must think about behind the caper must think about the ineligible mark that the heist is left on American culture and how, five decades later, we're still wondering who D.B. Cooper was and what ultimately became of him. Now, 
there are some theories that D.B. Cooper was a woman, so they should be careful saying it was a man for sure. Now, I think they got their timeline screwed up here because they're saying the boy found the money five years, yeah, five years after the D.B. Cooper um, event, which to me is not right. So I was born in 77. D.B. Cooper obviously happened before I was born. But um, I remember my mom talking about them finding that money. And I want to say it was in 80 or 81. It was definitely after I was born. And the boy found approximately $5,000 of the $200,000. May have been a little bit more, but it's around $5,000. Uh, and it was quite worn. It, it uh, The edges were torn up and everything else from being in the water. Now, I've said this to Trey and a few others, but from the Pacific Northwest, the biggest, like, in, in this stuff that we cover, mysteries, paranormal, unexplained, the biggest things to ever come out of the Pacific Northwest are the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting of quote-unquote flying saucers in 1947. So, again, folks, I'm not talking about the best case. I'm talking about the things that have made the biggest mark on the world. You got that? You've got Sasquatch, which Sasquatch is from the Pacific Northwest. You can say wild man and Bigfoot and that is from all over the world, which is true. But the term Sasquatch comes from the Pacific Northwest, from the Indians there. Okay, And the third one is D.B. Cooper. There are lots of other things up there that are astounding, really cool. But those are the three that I, I, I've got no doubts have left the biggest impressions on the world at large. So yeah, very interesting, and happy 50th birthday to uh, D.B. Cooper, which I'm sure has passed away now, whoever it was, be it man, be it woman, be it alien. Rightio, so the last one for tonight, this one's a bit of fun because we are heading towards Christmas, marching towards Christmas because we're now in December here in uh, the Southern Hemisphere, and uh, well shouldn't say Southern Hemisphere, just in my country. Rightio. So this one is from BBC News, and this is just a few days old. Mystery as Santa hats appear on college chapel statues. And they've got photos of these gothic statues wearing Santa hats. And even like, it uh, looks like a griffin off the side of a building. A photographer says, oh, sorry, it's this is from BBC, and... Just trying to see if there's name of a writer, but I don't see it. it. Says a photographer says he believes a rascal student is responsible for attaching festive hats to car figures high on a college chapel. Martin Bond says he first saw the Santa hats at St. John's College, Cambridge, at about 11 GMT on Monday. So that's 11 a.m. Some people believe they were placed by a drone, but they definitely climbed up there, he said. I was told by a porter no key had been signed out, so they weren't placed inside. It was done from the outside. The Gothic-style chapel at St. John's College was built in the 1860s and stands 163 feet or 50 meters high. The city-based photographer has taken an image of Cambridge... Uh, sorry, it's just... Sorry? Uh, oh, yeah, that that is part of the story. Apologies. The city-based photographer has taken an image of Cambridge every day for more than a decade, collecting them online under the name A Cambridge Diary. He said at least three hats could be seen on top of statues and gargoyles at the University of Cambridge building. Posting the images on Facebook and Twitter, 
He said a rascal student has placed the Santa hat on the heads of the figures of St. John's College Chapel. So why is this my picture of the day? He added, ask yourself how. A commenter alluded to the work of Cambridge University night climbers, or students who defy the dangers to scale the college buildings under cover of darkness. It is not the first time an unusual addition has been spotted on the college rooftops. In November 2009, climbers scaled an 80-foot or 24-meter external wall of King's College Chapel to fix four Santa hats on the pinnacles. In June 1958, a battered Austin 7, so that's a car for those of you that don't know, uh, appeared on the roof of the Senate House overnight. St. John's College has been contacted for comment. So, interesting little one. I hope they were safe in doing it, but um, yeah, a little bit of a Christmas story for you as we are moving very quickly towards Christmas. And with that being said, folks, that is the news of the damned for tonight uh summer christmas coming up i don't know quite what we're going to do this year um i do want to get onto that barney and betty hill stuff but in the meanwhile i'm gonna keep working at just getting episodes out i'll tell you what folks i will have a better update for you by the time the next episode comes out how's that uh, i'll give you a better update of kind of what we're doing for the rest of 2021 now, with saying that, I do hope that you have a great week, and I'll have something else out for you as soon as I can. Take care, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.